I love going to the movies. I'm not one of those people that only gets fired up about the big screen if it's a big movie with crazy special effects and relentless action. I'll basically go see a mumblecore film in IMAX. But if you're the kind of person who only goes to movies for spectacle, this has got to be your best holiday movie season ever. Today, of course, Star Wars The Force Awakens arrived in theaters in a plethora of formats, including 70mm IMAX and something with lasers. Then, on Christmas, the roadshow version of Quentin Tarantino's new movie, The Hateful Eight, gallops onto the scene in an ultra-wide format that hasn't been used in 50 years. And here's the coolest thing about both of them. In an era where the coolest effects in Hollywood always seem to come from computers, both of these movies require old-fashioned, hands-on craftsmanship to achieve maximum kiss-kiss-bang-bang. We'll talk to Jim Radebush of Panavision and Zach Fersh of the Smithsonian Institution to find out why. Then, if you're still unconvinced about the magic of the big screen, today's Stupid or Amazing is for you. We take a look at the luxury theater experience, that is, movies with recliners, cutting-edge audio, and table service, and render a verdict. I'm Kevin Dupzik, and this is How Your World Works. Okay, so like everybody else, I'm really looking forward to seeing Star Wars, and I went to go get tickets and discovered that you don't just buy tickets to Star Wars, you buy tickets to one of many different versions or presentations of Star Wars. So I asked our editorial assistant, Lara Sorokonich, to help me figure out what different version of Star Wars is what. Yeah. I don't even think they're called versions, Lara. That's how lost I am. Yeah, so basically there are five uh, ways that you can see this movie, and there are only really three of them that you're probably going to see as an average moviegoer. Um, the other ones are a little more niche. Okay. The big one, the one that all your cinemaphile friends are going to be talking about, is IMAX in 70 millimeter. So that's an old school film camera, IMAX. Mm -hmm. uh, it's those big domes that you see at science museums. And in fact, the majority of the places that are showing this movie in this format are actually science museums. You actually talked to somebody at one of the handful of movie theaters that's playing the 70 millimeter film format. Right. And it turns out it's a lot of work to yeah. play this movie. Yeah. So I actually got to talk to Zarth Birch. He's the uh, director of theaters at the Air and Space Museum and all of the Smithsonian institutions. Okay. Well, let's listen to that interview now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been working on for the past 24 hours? Ah, of course. So uh, I was building by hand our nine-plus-mile-long 70-millimeter film print of Star Wars The Force Awakens for the Lockheed Martin IMAX Theater at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, if that's not a mouthful. Wow. And so how long did it take you to assemble all of these miles of film? And could you sort of take me step-by-step step through how that process goes, um, from how you receive the film to how you put it together and all of that? Well, it arrived in 40 individual pieces that are you know, roughly the same uh, size. And they do it in 40 pieces uh, for a variety of reasons, um, uh, ease in shipping. And if there's any type of problem, be it a a factory defect, or, or uh, let's say that I had made a mistake last night, then you're only you only have to reprint one of the reels versus you know trying to get into okay this is the frame describing the frame, looking at the um, the frame count uh, etc. So so then of course you um, uh, assembled it um, reel one through forty, uh, they are either heads out or tails out um, different projection systems, and so we make sure that each reel is heads out. We assemble it 1 through 40. Um, you cut at the end of each reel. Uh, you splice it with um, good old-fashioned splicing tape, the same 
as you would do with 35 or traditional 70 millimeter film. So you are literally hand splicing 40 reels. Then of course you have to uh, assemble that onto a platter. And in most cases you can't do that directly onto the platter. And so it is about a 12 hour process all in. Wow. Uh, you load the soundtrack. And one of the interesting things uh, when I mentioned you load the soundtrack is that with 35, the time code for the soundtrack would be on the film itself. And one of the differences there is that if the time code is on the film, that takes up some of the projectable region of the film, where the 15 per 70 millimeter film, all of the film except for the actual perforations, is the portion that is projected onto the screen, so there's no time code. So you actually count the frames and you load the soundtrack and you have to make sure that you have a you set a picture start point and an end point, and uh, you count the frames as they go through the projector, and that is your sound sync, which is one of the reasons why you also have to have a meticulous process and never lose a frame, because if you lose a frame, uh, you would be, uh, your sound would not sync, and therefore you'd have to either replace it with black frames temporarily until you could replace that reel or that portion of a reel, or um, you'd be without sound sync. So it's one of the points of pride for all of these um, film systems and IMAX theaters that are still in existence is that they aim to have a print in the exact same condition when it um, arrives as when it leaves and every single frame in place and it's a, it's a pretty special process but yes it did take about 12 hours and uh, it was as I said a little nostalgic since it's likely the last one we will ever build uh, here at the uh, Air and Space Museum but uh, yeah it was, it was special. Well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. So just a few hours ago, Popular Mechanics Articles editor Sean Manning was here in the studio. He interviewed Jim Radabush of Panavision about how Quentin Tarantino shot his new film, The Hateful Eight. Let's take a listen to that interview. Jim, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you guys doing? Good. So I, I wonder if you could uh, give us a little bit of history of Ultra Panavision 70, uh, condensed history, and then maybe tell us how that's different from what we see in theaters today. Well, uh, Ultra Panavision 70 was kind of... Uh, an answer to Cinerama back in the day in the 1950s. You know, everybody in the exhibition business was trying to get people out of their house and off the couch and back into the theater again once television uh, started becoming popular. And I think people uh, might not understand exactly what we say or what we mean when we say Ultra Panavision 70. So that is really referring to the, the glass and, and the lens. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Um, it recorded the image onto 65-millimeter film negative, which had been around, but the lens has an anamorphic process, and that basically means that uh, it's taking the horizontal image and it's squeezing it down by roughly 1.2 times. So you're taking a very wide aspect ratio, you're compressing it down onto a 70-millimeter negative, then when it gets to the theater, there's another lens on the projector that does the opposite. So it takes that squeezed image that's on the, the film print and unsqueezes it back out again to the 2.76 aspect ratio. Yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of a touchstone in, in cinematic history. I don't think many people are aware of what films actually were shot on Ultra Panavision 70. Actually, there was only really uh, seven or eight films that uh, shot in Ultra Panavision 70 back in the day. There's uh, you know, Ben-Hur is one of them that 
kind of sticks out. Uh, Battle of the Bulge, I believe, you know, is, is on 65 millimeter, so 65 millimeter film was a little bit expensive. And it wasn't long before filmmakers migrated to shooting 35 millimeter film and anamorphic. Uh, it was just more of an economical way to get the widescreen. But but something is certainly lost uh, between the two. And, and and as I understand it, that's sort of what appealed uh, to Quentin Tarantino with *The Hateful Eight. Uh, how how did that relationship come about? How did how did he find out about Ultra Pan and Vision 70, and how did he come to you guys uh, with wanting to partner up? Well, his uh, cinematographer Robert Richardson uh, had has been collaborating with Quentin for some time, and Robert came to Panavision and pointed out that the very first line in the screenplay for The Hateful Eight is, you know, the scene opens up in glorious 70 millimeter. So we knew from the get-go that this was going to be a large format project. Ultra Panavision hadn't really come into the picture yet because nobody had really, you know, even thought about Ultra Panavision since 1965. We have these lenses uh, somewhere in storage, somewhere on display. We have a little museum set up here at Panavision. We were showing Bob Richardson some of the spherical 65-millimeter lenses, which is what they were originally planning on using. Uh, we took him in the back to look at some lenses, and he saw these this row of lenses up on the shelf. And the first thing out of his mouth was, what are those? So we were like, well, those are ultra-panavision lenses. Uh, they just were sitting there. We don't throw anything away, and they do have a historical significance. So... Uh, we took one of them off the shelf, we put it on this projection bench with a little modification, and everyone was kind of stunned as to uh, how well the images actually look. Even though it was a test pattern, basically, the, the image was sharp, uh, it was flat, uh, reproduced very well onto the, onto the projection screen. So we decided that we would take just three of them and modify them to work on the modern 65-millimeter film cameras. And, and that wasn't the only thing that you guys had to do. Uh, you also had to create an entire new magazine for this particular project. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was one of the things. Uh, if you're familiar with Quentin Tarantino films, he loves dialogue. So he may shoot for you know, four, five, six, eight, ten, twelve minutes uncut. On 65 millimeter, a thousand feet of film, which is the, the full capacity of the film cameras, only runs about eight minutes. And he had scenes written in this film that were... 12, 15 minutes long. There was no compromise. He wasn't going to do uh, a take where, let's say, the camera passes past a pole or a wall, and, and hidden in that pass, you cut and you continue on. So this was to be a continual moving scene uh, in the film. So I got a phone call one day from Kodak, and they said that the 2,000-foot rolls of film will be delivered in two or three weeks. I was like, well, that's nice, but what are you going to put them in? Uh, there's no such thing as a 2,000-foot film magazine for 65 millimeter. So we got some engineers together and we sat around the table up in the boardroom and about a week and a half later we had a, a, a blueprint for this new 2,000 foot 65 millimeter magazine. And you guys you guys manufactured everything in-house there, right? How, how much exactly. time? How, you didn't have very much time to do that as, a, as I remember. No, we did not have a lot of time. Uh, we started off with a 440 pound block of aluminum and about 13 weeks later they were on the set with three magazines doing their first test. Yeah, I mean, the lenses especially, all that stuff had to be rebuilt, and some lenses had to be built from scratch. So it was quite an undertaking. I think I counted that we had something in the neighborhood of 14 different departments here at Panavision involved in this project, which is kind of unheard of nowadays but with digital. It's kind of what we used to do all the time, but it was kind of nice to see everybody from all these areas working together to, to get this project out the door. Well, one of the fascinating things is the idea that the the glass, uh, you know, these these are 
lenses that hadn't, like you had said, that hadn't been used since the 60s. Uh, and in fact, uh, these lenses are the same uh, on Hateful Eight that, that actually shot Ben-Hur. Uh, right. But but you talked a little bit about the changing of the glass, you know, how it sort of aged almost like a wine. Yeah, I mean, the glass, the, the coatings on the glass and some of the elements, uh, the properties of these coatings that they used back in the day, you know, they changed color. Um, the properties changed a little bit. And in some cases, uh, they may have more of a warmer look, maybe a, more of a softer look. And this is all just, you know, organic. It just kind of happens. And a lot of these original lenses, especially the ones that we pulled off the shelf, had this look. So one of the things that Bob Richardson was very adamant about was that any modifications that we do to the lens to make them compatible with today's film cameras, we do not change the look of the glass. You know, we don't change uh, the color or the warmth or the fall off and, and those sorts of things, uh, which was a challenge because we had to build some new lenses to kind of fill some of the intermediate focal lengths that were never created back in the day. And and I know so so Bob Richardson is is ecstatic about this. You guys obviously, you know, you're you're thrilled uh, to some extent minus the the short time frame to be reintroducing these lenses. Uh, but there was still Quentin Tarantino uh, to get on board with this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Quentin came in for a little show and tell. Uh, we we wanted to show him the lenses uh, physically and um, talk about some of the challenges that that we may run into and just kind of be upfront about everything. And we were all kind of stepping into new old territory, as we like to say around here. We have a, a theater here at Panavision, about 103 seats, and we have the ability to project Ultra Panavision 70 on film. And we brought him in to show him the chariot race from Ben-Hur. And, and what was his reaction to that? Uh, wow was the first thing out of his mouth. But once we got into uh, the chariots racing and you have these really extreme close-ups of the the horses, you know, got their snouts basically, you know, huffing right into the lens. He was jumping up and down. I mean, he was like, his arms were playing in the air, and every time, you know, uh, an extra got ran over, <laughs> red cherry <laughs> flipped over, uh, he was all over it. He was loving it. Well, I th that's great stuff. I mean, I think you've basically saved our listeners $100,000 in uh, Masters of Photography at UC USC Film School. So. <laughs> We always say Panavision is the best film school. <laughs> no kidding. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Okay, so for today's episode of Stupid or Amazing, we're going to talk about something that we've decided to call the luxury movie theater experience. Now, the whole episode today has been about movies that are coming out around the holidays this year. I'm a huge movie fan, but I kind of have a bone to pick. A lot of my friends just don't really want to leave the house to see movies anymore. And uh, I think all the movie theaters know this too, because there's more and more movie theaters where you actually can go and get treated like a king. Um, I used to go to a movie theater in the Bay Area where they had couches and armchairs and table service. You could get pizza and beer while you're watching the movie, and you could place more orders as the movie went on. So for today's Stupid or Amazing, I've got Mac Ouellet. Hi, Kevin. And uh, Sean Manning, you're sticking around. We were just talking Hateful Eight, and you're still here. Do you guys think this is stupid, or do you think it's amazing? Matt, I'll let Matt go first. Uh, I think there's another factor to this that you didn't mention is the seat reservation factor and that you can like go and reserve your seat and it's mm -hmm. sort of like you have your, your, your ticket locked in. Um, I veer towards the stupid on this. And the way I like to go to movies is typically like on my own before noon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have to explain <laughs> this. This, this sounds time. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's the best deal, the best cheap thing a person can do for themselves 
is go to an AMC theater before noon, or even I think Bo Tyson was doing it as well, before noon, and tickets are like half price, and nobody goes. So like I could go see you know whatever movie tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday before noon, and only pay like six or seven bucks. Fantastic. You wake up a little bit hungover on a Saturday morning. You go get your coffee, your donut. You sneak it into the theater. And, I mean, that unto itself. And you have most of the theater to yourself. That's a luxury experience. So to pay, <laughs> to pay like, 20 bucks to, like, you know, go on a Friday night where it's still going to be crowded, you're going to have to get a reserve seat, which, you know, the rules of society may dictate that, oh, you reserved a seat. But, like, people are jerks, and people are more often than not m- more jerks at movie theaters. And there's no, like, one enforcing, like, this reserve seating thing. Like, that's a crapshoot. I don't trust it. Uh, and, and, like, the food isn't going to be that much better than just a salty bag of popcorn and a big cherry coke so okay see but i have to take issue with like your food argument so in my head there's there's two there's two routes you can go here so one is just about like the movie experience yes if you want to pay 10 extra dollars to see a movie with like the best the best sound system ever then i think you got to really pick and choose which movies you care about doing that with yes but on the other hand like some of the theaters i've been to like the alma draft house in in austin for example there's like good craft beers like, it's actually good food. Like, it's like going to a pretty solid restaurant, but also getting to watch a movie the whole time. I think that's amazing. Mm, no, see, I want, I don't need that for a movie. If I'm going to go see, you know, Spotlight, like, I don't need it to see it, you know, with artisanal beers and, and all that BS. I just need to, see, like, get through it and, and go home and, and maybe bring in a cup of coffee with me because I'm seeing it at 10 a.m. Sean Manning, where do you fall on this? <laughs> I'm going to get a little political right now with you. Uh, I think it's, I think, I think the word, you use word luxury, and I think that sort of, of, of hits it, is the idea that, you know, when movies started with the silent films and then going to the talkies, it was very much a very sort of, uh, democratic mass entertainment, Mm -hmm. right? It was affordable. It was a little ribald. It was, it was, you know, it was for the general public. Uh, and now I think what's the average price for an IMAX ticket? It's like, it's over $20. It's Mm -hmm. gotta be at least 20. And then you throw in refreshments on top of all of that. And and especially reserve seating. I mean, the whole the wonderful thing about films is is the democracy, right? You show up early enough, you get the best seat in the house. You know, it's not waiting online. It's really put it paying your dues, putting the effort. Uh, and so I feel like it's it's becoming movie going experiences come sort of a one percenter activity, mm-hmm. uh, which is it's sort of shameful. Uh, there's certain theaters though that are bucking the trend, and one of these uh, which I've come to experience uh, spending a lot of time in the South recently. Is called Carmike Cinemas. Oh, that's actually the one Carmike that's in Cinemas. that was in Missoula. It's Carmike. So the big D. Yeah. So Carmike has, uh, I believe, it's still ongoing. They have what they call a Stimulus Tuesday special, where it's a dollar fifty for all popcorn and drinks, and they also have a uh, deal where if you pay seventeen dollars and fifty cents annually, you get a bucket to take home, which you can then bring back and refill your popcorn for three dollars and fifty cents each each time. So I think there's there's people that are still sort of supporting this notion that it's a very communal, moving-going experience. You know, once once you start having seats that recline and waitresses and waiters and sort of walling yourself off from the obnoxious people that are sitting behind you, uh, I saw Creed a couple weekends ago, and you know the whole movie theater shouting uh, yeah. in, in unison uh, in the last fight, and the idea that if you're reclining in a leather seat, you're not going to be uh, so eager to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I was with an audience that like applauded throughout, like throughout every big scene of Mad Max. And it was like one of the most yeah. fun I've had at the theater this summer. And that's where it's really, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, 
reassures like the movie going experience. It, it's those rare times that when you get a, a real jerk behind you uh, who's causing trouble or talking throughout the movie or checking cell phones and that. But then every time you do have one of those wonderful experiences, like, oh, yeah, this is why I go out of the house and go to the movies. And like recliner seats and and like reserve seating, like that's not going to stop that. Like, uh, you know, the, a movie theater has to like implore people to turn off their cell phones right. and not text during movies, you know, before they even start screening the previews. So, like, what's to stop, you know, someone when you get at your seat reserved or, you know, get your space that, like, they're not going to screw with that, too, because people are, are terrible at movies. So, <laughs> like, you know, no amount of money or, you know, viewing with any kind of luxury is going to make anyone less awful or the experience, you know, less yeah. of a of a enjoyable nuisance as it, you know, as it can be. Okay, so here's my question, though, because I like your populist argument mm -hmm. although you use the word ribald and making a populist <laughs> argument i'm dubious well you know you, you got your women in their petticoats going to the theater right you just give like gravy boats or something if <laughs> yeah. you showed up yeah <laughs> uh, my question is though so i mean because everybody agrees that, that things are way overpriced at the movie theater and the tickets the prices are getting higher and higher but suppose you could take price out of it suppose some chain came along and figured out how to offer at a say at ten dollars a ticket you could have some of these extras, like you could you could get beer or you could have couches or something. So if it wasn't separating this like one percent, ninety nine percent movie experience, would you still be opposed? Do you think it's like actually kind of dumb to be in a darkened theater but be in an armchair? Or no, I love that idea. I love the idea of again the communal experience. I mean, everything everything these days is is going within the house, right? Concerts, movies, uh, any sort of event. You're you know sports. You're able to watch this. Uh, for without leaving the comfort of your home, home in in many cases on a screen that's as big as any independent theater in, in New York City. So, I, I, <laughs> but so what is the incentive? And the incentive is to be around people, to to sort of marvel at what they're reacting to. You know, there's no, there's ever a better sensation when you're the only person to laugh in the entire theater, and you're getting something that nobody else is, or or vice versa. You're laughing with everyone else. You know. Okay. I I was I was gonna say amazing, but you you guys have said like some beautiful things. Like I'm getting emotional over here. So <laughs> I think I, I think I'm with you. I think I'll, I'll say stupid. Yeah, it's stupid. If if I could see like a movie like Dark Knight or like Star Wars on like those huge amazing screens, I would of course because it's, it's so cool to see them like that. But I don't think it's like a make or break situation. Like I'm going with my brother. This is so like I could have gone to the screening last night. Mm -hmm. I'm going with my brother at the day after Christmas, and like, I'm not reading about it, can't talk about it, can't want to hear what anyone <laughs> thinks of it until yeah. like a week from now, so it's gonna be impossible. But like, I had this opportunity. I was like, I can't go, and I can't go see it in this big, you know. So we're going to like the like, Rinkadink Theater down yeah. the you know street from where he lives in Boston, and we're going after Christmas, and we're going together because like that's how you go see Star Wars. Luxury, or maybe we should call it the one percent theater experience. Stupid. By consensus, stupid. We're a magazine of the people here. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Popular. Popular. <laughs> and that's our show. Higher World Works is produced by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley, Andy Bowers, and Panoply, and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief, Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And don't forget to check out our sister show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. If you want to read more about Zarth Burst's adventures in the projection booth, check out our website, popularmechanics.com slash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dietzis. Thanks for listening.